This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki in New Plymouth, thanks to New Zealand On Air. For more local content, search for accessradiotaranaki.com. In this holiday edition of Neville Rides Boundaries, my guest is the effervescent, quick-witted author and playwright Jim Hopkins, and Jim is going to be telling us about his experiences in the early world of TV and radio. Today is Waitaki councillor Jim Hopkins, who is well known throughout New Zealand for his quick wit and entertaining, and also <laughs> found time to be a scriptwriter for Close to Home, which was a little while back now. I caught up with Jim today, and today he's going to tell us a little about early radio and TV experiences in New Zealand. Good afternoon, Jim. How are you, sir? Oh, Father used to listen to that and well, follow it. Oh, and no, it. yeah. And, uh, oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yes. And the Goon Show, of course, genius comedy. Yes. And uh, I mean, these, these were times when there was one radio station, or yep. maybe two. Um, but, but, I mean, stuff on them was as boring as bat guano. <laughs> assuming bat guano is boring. It may not be. I've never encountered it, to be perfectly honest. But... <laughs> You may know more about that one than I do. I don't know, living in the cage and Taranaki as you do. Oh, well, yeah, because <laughs> we lived in the black back blocks of Hara here, and the only time oh, we could right. get bloody radio, good radio reception was in the evening. And yes, that's right, that's right. It was always better at night, wasn't it? Oh, and, um, hell yeah. Yeah, oh, yes. Anyway, um, the interesting thing was that, that all the music was... Tedious, you know, like um, those of us who'd actually heard uh, Rock Around the Clock and Bill Haley and a little bit of Elvis Presley and so on were absolutely champing at the bit, you know, to hear more. But all you got was one half hour a week, the Lever Hit Parade. Yeah. And that was basically that was basically New Zealand radio's uh, concession to, uh, to, to rock and roll music. For the rest, it was just Mantovani and his living strings and... <laughs> Oh, 
orchestra and Vera Lynn meeting us again and bluebirds over the white cliffs of rhubarb. No, no, no. <laughs> Truly diabolical. I, I, I can remember when I used to live with my grandparents to go to school and they always used to listen to the quarter past seven news, was it, in the evening? This is a baby calling yeah, from London. Yeah. Some 
did. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he offered me a, a, a job. It started out, I just did this little comic piece with this comic contribution once a week. And then I ended up working as a journalist uh, in the newsroom in Christchurch. So I was working for the regional news channel. And then um, somebody in Wellington sort of beckoned and said, come on up and run today at one, which was a, an afternoon show that was principally aimed at, at women. And you may remember Sharon Crosby yep. was, the, was the lady who hosted that. So I was a spotty wee reporter on that. And we had this mad, fanatical Scottish producer who reckoned that he wanted to do items about how men could breastfeed and oh god, yes. she, was, she, was, she was a rabid feminist and we just came, I mean, we spent an awful lot of time to say, Deidre, we can't do that, you know, no, no, let's, no, no, we're all dark. Anyway, um, I think in the end she had a meltdown or a conniption or she went back to the UK, I can't remember, but, uh, I moved on to current affairs. Oh, no, actually, no, 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 you're quite right. My first encounter with Wellington was when Peter Muxlow, he, um, he was a drama producer who'd been in Christchurch, and he'd done some work, and we'd, I'd done some script writing with him. And he was asked to take over. Close to home was really, I mean, Pukit Manu was our yeah. first, was New Zealand Television's first series oh, or yeah. serial. And the guy, the Mike Noonan, who wrote that, and the producer, and I can't remember his name, but they, they, in 74, when TV One was created, they committed to making Close to Home, which was the first soap opera slash serial in New Zealand. Um, you know, it was a, it preceded Neighbours. Um, is it Neighbours? Not Neighbours. Um, uh, Shortland Street. Yeah. yeah. Um, which um, Shortland Street's still going close to home, isn't it? But the close to home went for about 10 or 15 years. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, they had they were they were responsible for doing the first three months of close to home. And the only other person who'd done any drama work in the country at that stage was Peter Muxlow. So they dragged him up to Wellington to do the next three months. And he didn't know anybody who could write scripts. So he rang me up and said, how come and write the script? And I didn't know anything about writing scripts. I mean, I had no idea. And, and mercifully, there were a couple of people who had come over from the UK um, and had been working for Granada Television and um, had been involved with script writing for uh, Coronation Street and so on. And they were of immense help because they just kind of bought a uh, a real understanding of how to write television scripts. Um, anyway, we did our three months, and uh, and we created a whole lot of characters, Mrs. Featherston and Ricky Winnie Arthur and uh, a whole bunch of other people um, who sort of went on to become sort of stars in their own right in Coronation Street, um, in Close to Home. And, uh, yeah, and then I, went, um, then I went back to Christchurch when that house stint doing the scripts doing the Close to Home scripts had finished. I went back and worked in the newsroom, and then I got asked to go up and do uh, Today at One, and then I went from there to Current Affairs, Dateline Monday, the Current Affairs show that Ian Fraser hosted. And this was when Muldoon was Prime Minister and in his prime. And uh, you may remember the infamous or famous Simon Walker interview where Muldoon got really angry and everyone got very sort of 
intense and fraught. And I had a couple of encounters with Muldoon on a similar, of a similar nature. One of them, I had to interview him about, uh, you may remember the, when the Khmer Rouge uh, took over Cambodia. Yep. And when, when the true horror of what they had done started to become known, and I think John Pilger went to Cambodia and did a very famous documentary showing how they had literally, the Khmer Rouge had literally murdered, massacred millions of people. I mean, they were as bad as Stalin and Hitler in terms <laughs> of the, in terms of the kind of pogroms and, and massacres and, and, um, uh, Holocaust type exterminations that they had, they had, um, uh, become, a, that they had committed. But the interesting thing was that they were part of New Zealand. This was just after the Vietnam War, or maybe, mm-hmm. I, think, I think the Vietnam War may have been sort of sputtering to a, to a close. So you had people like China and North Vietnam and so on challenging. There was a group called ASEAN, which was a, like, it was like NATO, but it was NATO for Asia. And Cambodia at the time was officially part of ASEAN. And so, despite the horror and disgust and loathing that what the, the, the revelations of the Khmer Rouge actions had created, despite that, our government continued to recognise Cambodia and hadn't severed diplomatic and political ties. So my job had been to go and interview Muldoon and essentially say, why, and when are we going to get out of it, and why you know, Why do you sanction these murdering swine, blah, 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 blah. So I asked all the right, sort of, why do you sanction all these murdering swine questions? Yeah. And he basically talked me up and said, that's enough, ripped his microphone off and walked out. <laughs> <laughs> Turkeys and gumboots. Oh, that was well. No, that was one of the reporters on Country Calendar. Was that Country Calendar? Yes, it was. That was a Country Calendar reporter. Um, oh. And I don't think it was Fred Dagg or John no, Clark. No. Um, although he may have helped write the script, but it was um, Grant Nisbet or somebody who worked for. Uh, I was. He was at Avalon when I was up there working for Current Affairs. So I remember the program very well. They used to do a sort of a, a zany Christmas or New Year's thing That's right. every year. And there was a guy who uh, supposedly was a musical composer who, 
these brilliant melodies on his on his wire pins. Do you remember oh, that that's one? Right, yep. <laughs> he plucked, plucked the wires like a harp. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. I remember and, that one. Supposedly created um, uh, um, amazing um, amazing tunes, and there was another one. Um, Oh, I've got a feeling it was uh, oh, growing spaghetti or something. I can't remember something like that. That uh, it went down a tree and uh, and a large number of people fell for it and believed it to be true. And somebody had to put out a statement later saying, "Guys, we were joking." <laughs> but but hey, but, I yeah. sort of think of those days, and I think of uh, and I can't think of his flaming name. He used to do a dog show, and it was all about dog trials. Oh. Yeah. 
then it must something must have happened because at that point it will have definitely and absolutely run out of fuel. Um, so it will either have landed somewhere and be safe but unable to communicate or something terrible would have happened. Anyway, um, the night wore on and eventually uh, I have a feeling either the Americans that McMurdo sent a plane out and had a look and saw the wreckage or Air New Zealand just, I mean, an hour after it was the last possible minute um, had, had passed. Air New Zealand just said, We're, you know, the plane's gone missing. And anyway, I remember, I remember the phones just went mad. Just absolutely. We were in this newsroom, about three or four people in the newsroom in Wellington. And every phone in the place just lit up like, uh, like, uh, like a fire siren, you know. Just, yeah. it was, you know, if you could imagine 20, 30, 40 phones all ringing. And, yeah. um, I mean, we, we just pick up the phone, answer the phone. And we got, <laughs> Playing radio stations from Texas, and, and, and I mean, you know, people say, Oh, hey, are you from New Zealand? Yeah, are you from the Meteorological Service? No, I'm not. Okay, just stand by, we're going live. We've got Jim here from the Meteorological Service. No, no, no. <laughs> so, but the one I remember was the Japanese news, news program rang up, and they said, Hello, Japan here, we're from Plain Coast. Uh, Japanese, or you starting to remind me of Billy T. James and Howard Morrison doing ah, news ah. in Japanese. Well, I knew Billy. I didn't know Billy well, but I met him a few times up there. I met, I bumped into John Clark, Fred Dagg, who was, uh, uh, who was, I mean, when I was working on Dateline Monday, he was just beginning to do little satire spots on current affairs shows on TV1. And that was where the whole Fred Dagg character was created uh, and where it began. But he he was very friendly with Ian Fraser. And Ian was like a megastar. And so uh, us underlings never got to say much to John. Um, but I did I did bump into him. I did chat to him. He was a... Um, a, a like many people like that, he was quieter and shyer in public. I mean, when he was just yeah. being John Clark. Um, than he was when he was Fred Day. Um, Billy T, the same, you know. Uh, oh, really? Well, I'm not sure, but, um, I mean, the, the Billy T you saw was a kind of um, inflated version of the pilot Billy T, if you see what I mean. In other oh, words, yeah. there was a Billy T who, who was just quiet and, uh, you know, liked to relax and talk about whatever he wanted to talk about and didn't necessarily want to be or feel the need to be funny all the time. And then there was a Billy T who was the performer, the character. And he just, that character grew out of his, because um, he'd been in one of the show bands. Oh, yeah. And, and a bit like Billy Connolly, 
his comedy grew out of the introductions to songs and things. So it all started with him sort of, you know, just introducing a song and joking a bit about it or, you know, padding for time while the drummer fixed the strings on his guitar or <laughs> the, the, the pianist kind of got a new Steinway on stage. Um, and and, and he, he clearly had a talent for that as a frontman front slash vocalist, um, whatever. And uh, the comedy grew out of that. Um, and uh, he did a lot of work with Peter Rowley, uh, oh, who uh, I knew, got to know quite well, because Peter was involved with David and Co. doing um, not so much Mail and Gatsby, but Letters to Blanche. You may remember Letters to Blanche, yeah. though series that they did later on, which was a very good series, very clever, well done. Um, yeah. So they were all various people that I stumbled across in the early days, and then Gordon Dryden sort of saw me on the telly and said that he wanted me to go and work at Radio Pacific in Auckland, which was quite... I, I, I never did rock and roll, but I did do talkback. <laughs> Look, we've only got a little while left, Jim. Tell us a bit about... Oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Ah, personality. I've been on for too long, haven't I? No, it's all jolly interesting. We, we've got, we're nearly up to 25 minutes, so, you know, if you finish Great off with a couple of three minutes of, say, Muldoon, Bob Jones, Norm Kirk, Trevor DeClean, they were real personalities of those days, weren't they? Oh, I agree with you. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, Kirk was amazing. Um... Uh, and um, a tragedy, I think, from his personal point of view, obviously, his health killed him much earlier yeah. than, than he should have died. Um, Muldoon was fascinating. He was, uh, you know, the, everyone kind of, like Muldoon was a sort of a tyrant when he was um, yeah. prime minister. I did an interview with him much later after he'd left Parliament and finished with the Rocky Horror Show and so on. Okay. I was working for CTV, Canterbury Television, in the early 2000s. And by that stage, Rob had been out of the political limelight for a long time, at least a decade. And he was basically, um, he was a very big lilies man, wasn't he? He was very keen on yes, lilies, as I recall. Yes, he was didn't he? And, and he'd come down to Christchurch to judge a, a, a horticultural society lilies contest. And we did an interview with him, um, and he was so much more mellow, and he was so much milder. And it was an interview where he just, rather than wanting to look tough and hard, and I don't care what you think, and, uh, you know, <laughs> I love you, too, Mr. Longy, you know, it was, it was much sort of, it was, he, he wanted people, you know, he was talking in a way that signaled that he wanted people to like him, and, yeah. and that he wanted, you know, he wanted a legacy of being loved as well as, um, someone who frightened people or intimidated people. And the funny thing, well, the sad thing was that it wasn't that much later, six months or two, uh, six weeks or two months, he actually died. So that was probably the last interview anyone ever did with Muldoon. Um, I remember David Longy. We, uh, he, he, hugely, uh, impressive figure when he first turned up in Parliament. And, uh, he was quite convinced. I remember him saying to me, because we did some fundraising debates together, and I remember him saying, uh, because Bill Rowling was leading the Labour Party at the time and was consistently 
um, uh, behind in the polls and Muldoon, who was still national leader, was ahead. Yeah. And David Long, he said, no one, Labour will never lead in the polls or become the government again until everyone associated with the tragedies of 1972 to 75 has disappeared from the leadership. And the fascinating thing is, um, eventually, Moore, Mike Moore and Mike Bassett, uh, no, yeah, uh, Mike Moore, Mike Bassett, Roger Douglas, uh, um, Longie, they basically got together as a group and rolled Bill Rowling and replaced him with David Longie. And within a month, David Longie's prediction was true. David Longie, Labour was ahead of National and never went, never, ever uh, went behind right up until the 1984 election. And funnily enough, I was just talking to somebody about this quite recently, the same things happened with National. The moment all the kind of you know, messiness of the of the period between 2017 and 2020 with Bridges and Muller and Collins. The moment all that's gone, and a fresh face who isn't tainted with any of that turns up and starts running the place, bingo, National steps ahead of Labour in the polls and, you know, now looks as though it's uh, odds on, well, I mean, the pundits are picking at his favourite uh, party at this point for this year's election. So, you know, what goes around comes around, and what was true is true, I think. Well, you know, Jim, fascinating as it is. Yeah, yes. Jim, on that note, we'll have to end it there, but, man, Lord, that was bloody interesting, and uh, thank you, Jim Hopkins. That was a great update on broadcasting today. Go well, my friend, <laughs> and we'll catch up next year. Our two final guests for this holiday month next week will be Westport Mayor Jamie Klein and Grey District Mayor Tonya Gibson. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.